1: Welcome back to the New Books in Sports podcast. Our guest today is April Ace Smith, author of The Pitcher and the Dictator, Satchel Page's Unlikely Season in the Dominican Republic. Thanks so much for being with us today, Ace. Bob, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. Ace is a, a political consultant and describes himself as a baseball fanatic, and he's been a political strategist and or campaign manager at just about every level of government, from the mayor's office to presidential campaigns. Um, would you talk a little bit about your background, you know personally, academically, politically?
0: Sure, uh my background is very simple. Um, I really grew up in politics. My father was the district attorney of San Francisco for sixteen years, and uh my very first campaign was uh helping get him elected in nineteen seventy nine and I fell in love with politics and professionally, I've never done anything else since uh, I've loved baseball ever since I was a kid, and uh was a huge fanatic Giants fan my entire life. And the, the funny thing about this actual book was I never had an intention of writing a book in my life. It just happened one summer in 2005, I read two books. One was The Feast of the Goat by Mario Vargas Llosa. And the other was Satchel Page is America by William Price Fox. And I discovered this amazing story. I went to check it out and I found it was actually more amazing than it had ever been told.
1: Yeah, I love the story in your preface where you talked about buying a copy of the old uh, official encyclopedia of baseball at a rummage sale for like a dime or something like that. It reminds me of um, back in around 1970, I got one of those big the baseball encyclopedia. What uh, what fascinated you about that book?
0: I love the fact that it had the statistics for every person who would ever played baseball. And at that point, I thought I was going to go in the Hall of Fame myself. I believe I was in fifth grade. And so I would look over everyone's statistics and uh, figure out the, uh, the various pathways that I was going to make it into that book. But I I also, the other thing I loved about that book was that they had these uh, sketches or uh, of all the major league stadiums. And, you know, there was the sketch of the polo fields with that huge tooth missing in the center field. It just, I spent so many hours just thumbing through that book. I, I can't even tell you.
1: Other than the encyclopedia, what was the first uh, baseball book that you read?
0: Like for, for me, example, it was, was part of the Yankees. It, I, the first baseball books I read were um, biographies, and I can't even think of who wrote them. Uh, that I picked up at dime stores on Hank Aaron, and it was the about the time that I was really uh, loving baseball was about the time that he was breaking the Babe Ruth's records, and I, and I just picked up everything I could get my hands on about him. And you played uh, baseball as a youth, also very badly. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're kindred spirits then. Okay, good. You were a catcher, is that right?
0: I I was a wannabe catcher.
1: <laughs> was uh, and was Aaron your favorite player?
0: My favorite players were really at that time the San Francisco Giants had one of the most amazing outfield.s uh, They had uh, Gary Matthews, uh, Gary Math- Maddox in center, and and uh, Bobby Bonds in right, and it was this Matthew Maddox Bonds outfield that just really caught my imagination. They, they maybe never. Uh, you know, have been too many other outfields that could compete with that in terms of hitting and defense. And uh, it was those early years with the Giants. And, And another little thing that made me fall in love with the game was for a year, maybe it was two years, believe it or not, Al Michaels was the broadcaster for the San Francisco Giants when I was in high school. And we just loved hearing him uh he It was just such a pleasure and who who knew that he was going to go on to become a national celebrity, but as a giants broadcaster he he gave a life uh, to to the game that that especially for a as a teenager just caught my imagination
1: and uh, well, let's go to the book um the Pitcher and the dictator um
0: long term project When did you start uh, writing it? I really started writing it. Uh, probably in early 2006. The way it came about was I, I I learned about the story and I was fascinated and wanted to find out where I could find out more about it. So I did a bunch of searching and realized that the University of Santa Barbara, uh, UC Santa Barbara, had in their library the copies of the Dominican newspapers covering 1937. So I took a little road trip down there and I spent a weekend reading through all the issues. Uh, and, uh, as I went through it, I realized the story was way more fascinating than anyone had told it and, and was actually uh, in there, uh, in, in great detail. And, uh, I just became fascinated with the whole topic. And then I started writing the book and, uh, One of the things that was very humbling, if you've never written a book, I've done a lot of writing in my life, you come to realize it's way harder than you ever imagined. And so I probably wrote and rewrote this book four times before I got to anywhere near uh, what I wanted to accomplish. And uh, it's still probably not perfect, but uh, boy, just learning how to write a book is a thing of its own.
1: You're right. It's very humbling. I've written one also, and I remember – Looking at it and thinking, my gosh, I've got to cut X amount of words out of this thing. It is perfect, right? No. The editor editor said no. Um, In the book, you focus on two distinct and and flamboyant personalities, first being Satchel Page and the second being General Rafael Trujillo. Trujillo, I hope I pronounced that right. Um, Trujillo, yes. Uh, What attracted
0: you to Satchel Page? What did you find fascinating about him? I had known about Satchel Page by... uh, you know, whole whole life, and I loved his story, and more than anything, I'd remember reading his his bio uh I think I was in or his autobio when I was in college, and just believing at that time that it was really not just a wonderful baseball book but really a great piece of literature, and it will never get its due unfortunately because it was written by a sports figure uh, but it's this incredible american journey uh, at a point in time when things are in tremendous flux in this country and and are changing and you have this incredibly flamboyant figure probably the you know the the person in my life to him who probably came closest to him was probably Muhammad ali but uh you, you know it just just the whole flavor of it just struck my fancy, and uh, uh, there's just now going back.
1: Yeah. Page was a, was a barnstorming and a marketing genius in his own right, and he certainly wasn't afraid to jump leagues if the price was right. I mean, he did it in North Dakota two years previous to the season you covered, went up to like – I think it was a semi-pro team and played up there. and Then suddenly, he's offered $30,000 to come and play for a team in the Dominican. And you know, I did a, I did a rough calculation. I was just curious how much thirty thousand dollars would be in today's money, and it came out to be like five hundred thirteen thousand dollars. So that had to be an eye popping amount for even
0: Satchel Page. It was probably more than he had made uh, in his uh, entire career before that point. And he ran on. He, as you're well aware, he he hit some rather rough times afterwards, and uh, he needed every dime of it uh, when he was done with the Mexican leagues.
1: Yeah. So what did you find uh, fascinating about um, the Dominican in general and, and uh,
0: Trujillo in particular? It's the, the Trujillo story is is in some odd sense, uh, it's a man who faced a lot of the same challenges in, in a different way, in a different country, in a different time uh, than Satchel did. Uh, he was a uh, – came from a poor family from a relatively rural area. And he also uh, had Haitian or black blood, and it was very hard to climb the lateral opportunity in the Dominican Republic, even though they didn't have uh, color bars like we had in this country in many parts. But it was hard to climb the social structure and the economic ladder if you had black blood. And his story is fascinating because he really is able to climb that lateral opportunity because Of the American occupation of the Dominican Republic from 1916 to 1924. And he became a protege of some of the uh, Marine leaders who were down there, and they recruited him. And he realized that this was his great opportunity to advance in life. And so he learned everything he could from the Marines. When the Marines left, he became head of the Guardia Nacional, which was their. Essentially, their state police, which he then converted into the Dominican army, which he then converted into the presidency in a very underhanded way. But uh, he was a he was a person who had a lot of obstacles in his way, and um, uh, he I would say surmounted them. He maybe bulldozed through them uh, in a way that you could only do in that country.
1: Yeah, I saw the one example that he used where he was—he um, played sick and had the president come out to to visit him and make sure he was okay. And oh yes, I'm okay. And he said something to the effect that there's some disturbances in the in the capital, so he sent some troops out, and the president left, and then he sent some other troops out to countermand the orders of the first group that he sent out. Very, he played he played his cards very well over
0: there. He did, and he had ingratiated himself enough into the Americans that when he seized power, they just looked the other way. As a matter of fact, they really gave him tacit support all the way until uh, really the early 60s when the CIA, CIA smuggled in some uh, guns to have some D- Dominicans assassinate him.
1: Yeah, and it's ironic that the Dominican Republic was like one of the more oppressive regimes in the Western Hemisphere when Trujillo was, was the leader and yet blacks like Satchel Page enjoyed a status they could have never achieved in, the, in parts of the United States, like the Deep South, for example. I mean, did that surprise you that it was so um, liberal in one way and so repressive in the other?
0: You're 100% right, and to this day, if you – I spent a big chunk of time down there, and to this day, if you walk down any of the streets in – Say Santo Domingo in the evening, it it has a very uh, much a quality of of Southern America that I was used to in the say in the 1970s and 80s, where people are just sitting on their porches on their stoops and talking, and people are just outdoors. They're listening to radio. They're sitting around playing cards, talking. As you walk through, you realize that every there's everyone of all different races all thrown together and and it, it really is a uh, uh you, you know a one of those places that, that where everyone really mixes uh, never probably equally but but more or less much more so, so and and the great irony about what satchel and his fellow players faced was here they were coming from the land of free home of the brave and going to one of the most repressive dictatorships in the world at the end of the day, they probably had in some senses greater freedom there than they did in the United States because there was no color bar and one of the great ironies of the of his journey down there and him and his fellow players was with this great freedom and pockets full of money, they could go to any bar they wanted to, they could go to any dance hall, any brothel for that matter and they started having actually too good of a time, and as a result, Trujillo. And his buddies put down the hammer because they started losing time, started losing games, and uh, he ended up Trujillo and his buddies installing essentially the head of his Gestapo as assistant manager of the team, and they put the word out to the players: uh, "You won't win uh, if you don't win. Uh, you will win, or else, really." And they put the word out to all the bar owners and 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 other such places that if you serve these players' drinks uh you're looking at a bullet through your head so in in some ironic way they they initially got the freedom, but then they got the dictatorship.
1: yeah, that's some great incentive to play well, that's for darn sure you know um there were, and you touched on it a moment ago there there were other ways that racism was apparent on the island was weren't there? I think you said socio-economic.
0: Um, yes, it really was. It, it really was and Trujillo himself was so aware of this that as he grew older and became um, – I, I guess his, he believed that whether it was true or not, that his skin pigmentation was getting darker. He would not even appear in public without caking his, his face uh, in kind of uh, – in a, in a white, powdery substance to lighten his complexion, uh, that's how uh, aware he was of it.
1: Sort of an early-day Sammy Sosa, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I noticed and, – and actually, some of that racism translated into the newspaper coverage, I noticed you had one instance where a sports writer referred to Page and his two teammates as a very important trilogy of monkeys. And then suggested that they see here and shut up. And I thought to myself when I read that, I'm like, "Whoa, that's really something to see in a newspaper."
0: That was, that was a. Uh, and, and you'll also notice, and and I've put up a website called uh, thepitchingdictator.com dot com, where I've posted a whole bunch of the images. Some of them are in the book, but the the cartoons that were in the papers are pretty eye-popping as well. And uh, it was pervasive.
1: That's true. Um, You know, there's always been this myth about, you know, the infallibility of Satchel Page and some of it he probably, you know, brought on himself, you know, hyping himself. And and yet in your book we discover that he was, um, at times, he was rather pedestrian as a pitcher and even got roughed up a few times.
0: Well, that was most of his – His problems came when he um, really ran into some bad arm trouble in Mexico and it took him really between them – between then and uh, the return to the monarchs to really uh, get his arm right. But I I found one of the most fascinating things Mm -hmm. in in really learning about Satchel was understanding his very unconventional – Approach to pitching, and I found a really obscure book that I don't think too many people have read, where he described his secret, uh, very secrets to pitching and longevity. And one of the things I found just just amazing about it was he talked about how he deliberately threw out of different arm slots during a game. That he would go all the way from submarine to almost overhand. Um, on the theory that distributed the stress to different muscle groups in different parts of his body. Uh, And and he felt that that was one of the um, real keys to his longevity. And it's kind of interesting, as you know, today, uh, all pitching coaches pretty much teach this theory that you have to get down this repetitive Motion and repetitive arm slot, and you do it again and again and again. Satchel had a very different um, theory, which is is certainly not conventional wisdom pitching. He also believed, and this is something that is not. uh, You can see some of the uh, pitchers coming from the Caribbean have mastered this, but not enough American pitchers. Is he really understood that disrupting the timing uh, of hitters was? Was almost as important as throwing a a deadly accurate fastball, and so he had just a multitude of windups, uh, a multi, and and he would also walk the rubber. So he would also try not to pitch from any particular part on the rubber. He would. So imagine if you're facing him, he can literally pitch from anywhere on the rubber. He can come at you from a number of arm slots, and he's not going to give you the same motion. Plus, he has great speed and great accuracy and number of pitches. So if you just do the odds on that of guessing what's coming at you, let's say the odds of facing a modern day major league pitcher, it's maybe you're you're guessing somewhere all the different things, maybe one in five or something. With satchel, if you do the math, you're probably guessing something like one in three hundred. Right. Hitter never had a chance. The um
1: in fact you in, in talking about this, you devoted a section in the book toward the back about his his repertoire and his arm angles and all the different wind ups and, and names that he gave all of his pitches, which were, you know, they're fun and folksy, but you know, a lot of them had a lot of truth to it. You know, the B ball, you know, it's where I want it to be, that sort of thing.
0: But probably the two the two greatest uh you know testimonies to his effectiveness were um Ted Williams and Willie Mays and the Ted Williams story is fascinating because Ted uh, saved up his money as a kid just to go see Satchel and play in San Diego and then played against him later and And when he wrote his book, The Art of Hitting or Science of Hitting, he argued very passionately that the reason why pitchers uh, need to look at the Satchel Paige model is that he was constantly, as, as Williams describes it, changing the look from the mound. You, know, you never knew where the ball was coming from. You, never, you were always surprised at the timing. And, and he recounted facing Satchel uh, when Ted Williams was in his prime and when Satchel uh, was an old man and never even hardly getting a blue pit off him just because he was so confounding.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. You know, Williams probably didn't have a lot of respect for pitchers, but I'm sure in Page's case, he was uh, very, very respectful. Do you? Um, what about some of the other Negro League stars that played in the Dominican during that 1937 season? Can you talk about a few of those? And did they um, did they live up to their legends that we've read about all these years?
0: Well, probably the greatest but most unknown player is uh, Martín Diego, the great Cuban. Uh, if ever there was a player who was a two-way player, uh, it, it was the ego. And he really is someone who uh, – and, and I went out of my way in, in, in all these cases not to just believe uh, the books that were written about them afterwards. But to dig into all the contemporary accounts of all the games and as much as possible, I read uh, – only the Dominican newspapers. I read a number of Cuban newspapers. I read a number of Mexican newspapers from the time of these games. And you quickly realize with with the ego that this man uh, had a rifle arm, was a tremendous fielder, and he became later in life a dominant pitcher as well as a power hitter. Uh, There's probably never a – was never a greater player uh, All-round player who ever played the game, the man could play every uh, position, like an all-star. Uh, aside from catcher, he's one worthwhile highlight. And the other one who I don't believe gets enough enough attention uh, is probably Cool Papa Bell, um, who was uh, again just a. Not only was he one of the fastest players who ever played baseball. But again, if you dig into all the contemporary sources and you read the accounts, he was a he was a man who could hit for power, and he was one of these players who, if he just hit almost a routine grounder, uh, he had a good shot at beating it out. Uh, and and he was a incredibly intelligent player, great center fielder, uh, and again, probably deserves a lot more attention than he's gotten.
1: And then, of course, the uh, the big fish came down, in the in the, the person of Josh Gibson, who has had books written about him, but he's he was larger than life, and he made a decent contribution to the team as well. He
0: he probably was the uh, the the force that really um, turned around the the uh, fortunes of of the Ciudad Trujillo uh, Dragones. Uh, he, it's kind of an interesting story. He was originally recruited and uh, turned them down. And then he went to his owner, uh, Composey, and in a very respectful way said, uh, All these players are making huge amounts of money. They've offered me a huge amount of money. Uh, I'd like your permission. And Com looked at him and said, You know what? Um, I can't pay you anywhere near that. Uh, this is more than you will make uh, probably playing a few seasons and, and I can't in my right good mind and conscience turn you down. And so he let he let Josh come down and uh, he led, uh, I mean, he hit for the cycle in a game. Uh, he led uh, in every hitting category. He The, the man was just a, uh, just a monster,
1: and uh, Posey was a very enlightened owner for his time. Because I can't imagine any owner right now saying, "Yep, go ahead, go to the other league." Godspeed. You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, what was the um, uh, and you did a lot of research, obviously. What was the most challenging part about all this research?
0: Oh, I love research. There was nothing challenging. <laughs> I was the thing the thing that was most eye opening was uh, there was a there's a a real limitation to what you can uh, there's some of the papers you can get in America I traveled to the Library of Congress a lot of different places but um, what's it at the Dominican National Archives is really breathtaking and not only did they have all the uh, you know the papers from the other cities uh, Santiago which was the other major city uh they they had uh just a tremendous treasure trove of the local journals and uh, other smaller publications that that covered this like la tribuna which is the the publication which all those cartoons came from and the funny thing is that i'm so used to american research institutions where you have to get lots of clearances, lots of permissions, and and a very white glove. Uh, down there, you ask for something, and they send a couple people, and they dig deep. And in. in some cases, they, they would bring me these volumes that were wrapped up in brown paper and tied with string, and they hadn't been open for uh, probably 50 years. And they'd open them up, and we'd go through them, and little flakes would be falling everywhere. But there they would be, and uh, you really – I couldn't have done this without the help of the uh, uh, of the Dominican National Archives and the wonderful people there. And I'm assuming that you you can
1: read and speak Spanish. Is that right? Uh, my speaking not so great. My reading is pretty perfect. Oh, Okay, yeah, that makes it makes a lot of sense when you're looking at newspapers. They weren't faded or anything like that. Other than what you saw, um, sometimes you get in the National Archives and it's it's great stuff, but you can't read this stuff.
0: There were there were there were some close calls where there's chunks that are you're trying to figure out what they actually say. But I was able to to find in some cases where I was missing things to find uh, alternative copies of things in other libraries or other places.
1: What did you um, in doing this research? Did you learn anything that you didn't know before, or just gave you pause? Probably
0: the thing that that was the most eye opening to me was how how you know inaccurate uh the story had ever been told or inaccurately and and it's no one's fault it was it was really uh, satchels and the other players' tales that they told in the United States that that just really didn't add up to uh what really happened. And what surprised me the most was that I didn't think uh, – some of the things I maybe heard, speculated, I didn't think I'd ever be able to prove them uh, like the kind of – kind of the wild partying that Satchel and his uh, fellow uh, players did down there. But ironically – and I don't think they were even aware of this. Trujillo ran the sort of regime where people were uh, – denounced in the press. And and that's kind of the way he held his grip, very much like Stalin did with Pravda. And so what happened was they became very, very upset with the way Satchel and his teammates were partying. And so they denounced them full-throated and and in great graphic detail in the newspapers down there. Uh, And what would have happened if Page and his teammates were Dominican, they would have been afraid of of going to jail or getting shot. But I don't think, ironically, that they even knew it happened. Uh, I think the only thing they knew was that they saw they were being guarded by people with guns and things like that, and they got the message. But I, I was surprised at the amount of detail uh, that was actually uh, in the press at the time that, that allowed... Uh, it allowed me to tell the story in great detail. Yeah, there was one sports writer
1: at, on the island who wrote very, very caustically saying, you know, the legendary Page proved to be a myth.
0: I could – just – it's unheard of. You know, we always heard – Well, that was that was after his first outing. They all came around to Page's, uh, uh, Page's pitching after they saw him. He he had a rough start, but then he, he – Won almost everything he touched after that. Where he won something like
1: six or seven games in a row, and then he had that one one bad outing, and then he was in that last game that which, you know we really played it up dramatically. There they were way ahead, and all of a sudden it just started, you know, chipping away, and uh, just very dramatic. And I could just see you know you you give the narrative with Satchel Page, you know, pawing the mound, thinking, oh my gosh, I got to get this guy out, or else you know I'm not going to get back to the United States. There's a, there's a real fear there to throw a strike.
0: There was, there was, and it was probably, uh, probably one of the coolest heads who ever played the game. I uh, even got a little jittery. Yeah. Um,
1: how did your background as a as a political researcher help you in this project, if at all? I mean, you, you've already said you love to research, but uh, what techniques do you use that um, help? You know, that uh, future researchers that are listening right now might be able to use.
0: I guess my my outlook on everything is I always want to see what the primary sources say before I believe every anything I always want to see what's uh, available uh at the time and dig as deep as I can uh, in contemporary sources again without ever believing anything that's been written later until I know otherwise and if you have that dogged Determination that that you can get your hands on uh, original sources and piece them back together uh, and tell a story uh, w- without being influenced by uh, later accounts, uh, reminiscences, uh, and, and all the rest. Uh, I think that's your you know, really the best lesson, and so uh, really just taking the time to. Track down every contemporary source of every game, uh, every uh, box score, uh, tracking down also everything that was going on at the times. Uh, and so I went out of the way to, for instance, when you'll see this when they're in New Orleans, to read through all the New Orleans newspapers. Um, And find out what was happening every day and same within the the Dominican Republic and and to have a real – not just an eye on the baseball games were played but what was the context, what was going on. And one of the things you find out in New Orleans is you find out that um, at the time that Ibar is there trying to recruit Page, there's this horrific uh, lynching that happens in Mississippi, which is on the front page of the – of the New Orleans newspapers for, for almost a week. And uh, I, I'm sure that was a dominant – had to have been a topic of a conversation and also probably one of the reasons why uh, Page and his uh, fellow catcher uh, didn't think uh, twice about leaving. Yeah.
1: You know, I have this vision of you um, back in the stacks in the, in the library just sort of looking through a book or a document and suddenly just snapping your fingers and going, aha, you know, when you find something you can use. That's that's very
0: valuable. Am I close to the mark on that? You're very close to the mark, and uh, in this case, there were there were many many ahas, and the the biggest. Uh, th- there were little hints and pieces throughout it, but for instance, it's it's really hard to find a, um, for instance, a since it just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, pictures or recreations or maps or drawings of the stadium where they played in what is today uh, Santo Domingo at that time, Ciudad Trujillo. And I had heard anecdotally, for instance, that there was this US battleship, which had been uh, literally sitting on the rocks and rusting for decades. But I had no proof of that because there was nothing in the uh, Stories referencing it because I I guess people just – it was part of the scenery. They just took it for granted. And it wasn't until I actually found some cartoons from one of the newspapers showing the home runs being hit into the battleship that I was able to say, aha, that's where that battleship – it really was looming over the right field fence as you looked out. it, It was there. And so things like there, – there were a number of aha moments like that of certain things which I had heard of, I suspected, but really didn't have the proof of it because there's uh, – unlike uh, the world we live in where everything has been Instagrammed or Facebook 50 million times and, or you can look on Google Maps, uh, that is not the world uh, that, that existed.
1: I imagine that uh, the world would be a lot different – would have been a lot different back then if they had
0: social media. Yeah, it, it would have. What's what's remarkable though is that the uh, that world they lived in, because really the 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 mode of communication is largely newspapers. Is is th- there's probably as much as we love recording and and uh, everything on our video cameras, on uh, our iPhones. Since they were depending upon the written word, uh, there is so much that was written down that you really do have the ability to reconstruct this. Um, may, maybe even a better way than you could have just by – with photographic evidence.
1: Yeah, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Every every piece that I've read about you, and I've read a, a few of them in the last uh, couple of days while I was preparing these questions, um, whether you were fairly pr- portrayed or not, and you've got – had stuff on both ends of the spectrum. I um, spoke to the idea that you came off looking like a rather quiet, sedate, offensive guy, and then all of a sudden you were feared because you you were able to dig up the dirt. So I, I thought to myself, you know, knowledge really is power. Would you agree?
0: <laughs> oh, well, that's a that's a funny topic. Um, in in politics, uh, I've always run campaigns, and uh, that's what I love doing. And there was a period in my life where I I had done this in California where I wanted to get outside of California and learn how politics was done in the rest of the country. And I came to the conclusion that I would have to do something besides just running campaigns to catch the attention of of folks and and to really kind of work in all these other states. And so I came up with the idea, and this was in the late 80s when it was really not even talked about, of – of this, of this field called opposition research. And so I circulated all over the country um, and it worked out very well for my life at that point because I had small children. And so I wasn't really able to live the life of running campaigns, which is really a 20-hour day, seven-day-a-week type endeavor. I came up with the idea of, of uh, doing opposition research books and uh, really kind of helped uh, in some small way, create that entire field, and then I, when I was done doing that, I, it was something I never intended to do for that long. I went back to doing my passion, which was to run campaigns, and was able to come back and probably so, some of the ones you uh, people would have heard of um, was able to work on campaigns for people like Jerry Brown and Kamala Harris, and ran a few states for Hillary Clinton in in um, two thousand eight campaign. And I think you did Howard Dean as well. What year did you do him? Yeah, uh, we did some work for Howard. Yeah, that was that was back in his uh, when he was running in oh, 04. Okay. <laughs> That's before his yodeling. That one and yeah, that one. Yep. Uh,
1: yep. Uh, had oh nothing, yeah, had nothing that was, to do with that. Did yeah. you? <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Even if you did, I don't think you take credit for it.
1: Yeah. What was the most yeah. uh, memorable campaign that you worked on?
0: Probably my father's campaign in. 1979, uh, it, it was an interesting time in, Cal- in, in San Francisco history. Uh, the mayor and the um, uh, member of the board of supervisors, Harvey Milk, had been assassinated right. by a number of member of the board of supervisors and the DA who had bungled that prosecution was running for reelection and so it was like this incredibly uh, politically charged moment uh, in in the city 's history, and my father, who had been worked in the attorney general 's office for a number of years but had never run for anything, uh, decided to run for district attorney against the uh, prosecutor who had bungled the uh, Dan white case, which which involved the murders of of the mayor and and harvey milk and I took off a quarter from UC Berkeley to work on that campaign as a volunteer and it's kind of hard to describe, but San Francisco politics at that point in time was probably as close as you get to say presidential politics shrunk down to a to a municipal level uh, it was it was something was talked about around every water cooler uh, turnout was incredibly high and um it was a great passion, number of public forums, and, and really diving into that race and, uh, and and my father ultimately beat the uh, incumbent DA uh, was just really, really one of the most wonderful uh, eye-opening. But but also just seeing my father win was, was just uh, really one of the wonderful moments of my life. And you were hooked at that point. I sure was. Who would
1: you say, um, and you can you can include your dad if you want to, but who is the most interesting political figure you encountered? Whether you know you work for them or, or on the opposite side of the, of the field.
0: Well, that's an easy one. I mean, the most in- interesting political figure, period, probably, uh, uh, why, you know, far and wide is Jerry Brown. Uh, you know, he he is there is a talk about a brilliant man who's a complete iconoclast, uh, but I, I had that great fortune of working with him uh, when he was uh, running for attorney general and then uh, later for governor. And he was, he was wonderful to work with. Um, he's still governor as we speak, but because he was a brilliant man who was towards the end of his career and had nothing to lose and so was always able to say exactly what was on his mind and always do the right thing because he just didn't care about the political consequences and and so uh, aside from him just being a just a fascinating man with a brilliant mind uh, always has a point of view that you've probably never ever heard on any given topic uh, but but also to be able to work with someone who was such a dedicated public servant but who because of when he I, I work with him anyway uh, he wasn't looking around the corner at the next job uh, was able to to you know actually act with great freedom and you've worked enough
1: campaigns now um, to get a feel of the political landscape how would you describe our political situation right now I mean is it is it more turbulent than when you started?
0: We are in one of the most polarized periods of uh, American politics. I mean, you probably have to go back into the 1800s to find anything equivalent. And uh, you know, for our contemporary view of things, we we believe this is a radical radical departure. It's probably happened a number of times in American history, but it's um, it's it's a it's a different world. Uh, and and maybe the most different things are uh, as follows. Uh, number one, the news industry is completely turned upside down. Uh, news used to be driven by uh, local and state matters from the daily newspapers. Uh, they are almost virtually defunct. And people get their news really from uh, national and international outlets. And so what people know tends to be international and national news – which has flipped the entire paradigm of, of information. And so if you're working in state politics, uh, people are actually relatively low, low information. Uh, if you're working in na- national politics, people know more than they've ever known. And so um, why did a man like uh, Donald Trump succeed? He succeeded because uh, first of all, he, he understood. Uh, how TV works and how uh, audience worked uh, from uh, having been incredibly successful uh, but he also realized that there was a certain pull uh, he could exert uh, on the media to drive it uh, every single day and he he really uh, has changed conventional wisdom on on virtually everything about politics and and uh, in you know, obviously, people have very strong feelings about him. But uh, when we look back on him, uh, say, twenty, fifty years from now, uh, we're not going to look back on him per se. But we're going to look back on a point when uh, how we consumed information, how we reacted, public figures, what are the rules uh, of conduct, public figures, we're just all turned upside down, and literally. Uh, torn up and thrown out and and rewritten. And plus back, you know, even 50 years ago, I mean, it was all newspapers and
1: sometimes occasionally be national news, you know, like ABC, CBS, and and, uh, NBC. But now you have the internet, you have people going to their phones, people go on Twitter and break news that way, and and people start, you know, things snowball. So, I mean, it's just a totally different dynamic.
0: It certainly is. And and, um, there's a uh, you know, there's a there's a saying that when you're in the middle of a revolution, you don't really know what's happening, and and we really are in the middle of uh, of a political revolution. And I I'm like to say I got all the answers. I I don't think I have any more answers than the next person. No, I will say that the president's probably in, in a perverse
1: sort of way has probably rejuvenated the news industry because now they have all these topics to cover. It was, it was pretty pretty um what do you call it uh, blah for a while. Now all of a sudden you've got. CNN coming up with, no, we've got five breaking stories now and then they're, they're dispatching people out
0: there. So it's certainly, certainly different than it was maybe five years ago. No question. And say what you want about him. He drives ratings. And he'll he'd be the first to tell you, I'm sure. <laughs> True <laughs> enough. Here's the part of the interview where I ask you um,
1: if I missed anything is, or is there anything you'd like to add about the book You know that I haven't mentioned or that you would like to mention? Mention your website again too, though.
0: Oh sure, the website is dictator dot com, and, and you, what you'll see is you'll see a, a whole number of uh, pictures that I have in in my own little archives that I didn't have room for in the book, uh, all arranged in a way that you can you can look at them and some pretty interesting material. Uh, the only thing I would maybe add is just um, the. The, you know, one one of the predominant themes of the book, and and I, you know, I think it's just a, you know, you know, there's a moment in time we're at where we need to wake up to this. Is is just the, uh, you know, if you you need to take note of this, not just as a baseball story, uh, but as a story of uh, really the heroic st- struggle of African Americans uh, in America, and. Uh, we're we're at quite a time in our own history, and you know if there was ever a good time to sit back and look at what previous generations went through, and and what African Americans went through, just to get to where they are today. Uh, if there's a time to take stock of that and make change, uh, now is the time. Yeah, and also with the General Trujillo, I mean, um,
1: he he was a um... Savvy politician in his own right because he took advantage of the uh, you know the good neighbor policy the United States was was plugging very um, aggressively in the 1930s because the Franklin Roosevelt for example was so afraid of of uh, German influence in the Western Hemisphere so he was like well we'll look the other way you do what you want as long as you're you know you're with us so I think I think he played that rather well and even when they had that horrific. Um, Massacre at the Haitian border. I think about a year or two later, after after the, your book here. I mean, the Western people tended to look away in
0: general. True, and and one of the one of the other ironies about the story was, and this is again uh, why I actually put one of the advertisements for the for the. Uh, Series in 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 the captions of the book and in the, in the photos was because people don't believe me when I say that there was a series that was played for the re-election of Rafael Trujillo, and and there it is in in bold print and those advertisements that you know the one I showed in the book uh, ran almost uh, you know every other day in the newspapers uh, it, it was very explicit and the the truth of the matter is that. Um, Trujillo was a was a wily wily politician. As one of his hench people said later, yes, he was a dictator, but he worked very hard at it. And uh, he uh, you know, he would he would go to baptisms and you know baptize thousands of babies. He would he would travel the countryside. He was uh, um, he he. Not only controlled the press, there's probably some huge amount of it that he either dictated or wrote himself. Um, he was not a dictator in maybe the sense of the word we think of of someone who just you know was was high and mighty and uttering some orders from afar. He was he was he was involved in every little detail uh, of his government uh, down to the down to the uh, literally. Uh, like the number of uniforms ordered uh, by his armies, uh, just – just He was an OC dictator, in other words. He was – yeah, no, he he was – he knew what was going on. He really did. Well, we've – it's been a very
1: interesting interview, and I can go on for a long time, but I know your time is valuable. Um, do you have another project involved as far as maybe uh, putting out another book? And if so, uh, what would the subject matter be?
0: That's a great question. I, I'm still – uh recovering from writing this book. So I'll, I'll have to is he having written a book yourself, it's you really do pour part of your life into these projects. And uh
1: uh I'm I'm still in recovery. It's like the old Red Smith line about uh you know cutting open a vein and letting it bleed when you write. If you write well you bled a lot. <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: Okay. Well, we've been speaking with Avril Ace Smith, author of The Pitcher and the Dictator, Satchel Paige's Unlikely Season in the Dominican Republic. Ace, we really want to thank you for being on the show today. We really, really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. What a great pleasure. And I really appreciate the opportunity.
1: You've been listening to New Books and Sports, the channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters.